Hi there, thanks for joining us on this, the latest edition of Space Nuts episode 351, which is close to my heart because I used to be a Ford 351 fan back in the but day when they raced around Bathurst. Uh, on today's episode, we will be looking at experimenting with wormholes and other quantum stuff that's way too hard for my brain to, uh, to, to decipher. And we'll be upgrading SLS rockets. They asked Fred and I to do it, and uh, I, I brought a pen, and that should help. Um, other than that, we'll be answering some questions. Uh, Paul uh, is a follow-up question from last week, uh, or is a follow-up answer to Paul's question from last week about black holes. Uh, Buddy wants to know about dark energy, and Dave is uh, looking at the huntsman, not the spider. My son found a big one in his bedroom the other day, about as big as your hand. Huntsman spiders are huge. Uh, no, this is the telescope. We'll talk about that and much, much more today on Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me to unravel all of that stuff, particularly wormholes, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. It's so good to see you today through this wormhole yes. of uh, broadcasting. Yes, through, through the, uh, the fiber optic system that is the National Broadband Network. Yes, that's right. That's how we get together. I don't know what they call it in other countries. They probably call it better. But yeah. anyway... <laughs> Don't knock it. It's um, doing okay. So it's far. doing. It's yeah. It's it's working very hard though. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, yes, um, we've we've managed until now. But uh, I think the problem with NBN services in Australia and probably other services around the world is they they build them and then the demand just gets too big for what they've built and they have to keep trying to expand it and it's just not that easy. Which um, yeah, I think create. You know, there are limitations to how much bandwidth. And fit into the tube, and that's yep. always the struggle, isn't it? Indeed. Yes. What's going on in your life, Fred? Since I saw you last, uh, shouldn't take long to tell me. <laughs> a lot of space, nothing, <laughs> and a lot uh, of panicking uh, because of a forthcoming trip. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. But that's what happens. And uh, uh, Judy and I've got a forthcoming trip or a fifth coming trip. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and we just never get the weather right. When we go away, we oh, never get it go. right. Yeah. So, anyway, we will Neither manage. We, we think we might not either because there's a cyclone where we're going. Oh, yeah. Well, that'll do it. That'll yep. do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let us get started. And we're going to begin with uh, something very complicated that um, you have managed to decipher and solved. And you can write your paper and win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> it's all about experimenting with wormholes and quantum breakthroughs. It is. Uh, it, this is it's such an interesting piece of work, uh, or pieces of work, because there's quite a lot of research that's going on in this field, which we haven't really talked about before. We've certainly talked about wormholes in space. Well, we get questions about and them, we don't we? And we get questions about them, because mm. they're beloved of science fiction writers as a way of getting from one bit of the universe to the other without yeah. um, going to the you know the intervening 64,000 uh, years. I used one in my book, Parallax. I mean, yes. You've been flogging your book for the last five weeks. I thought I'd throw one in there. <laughs> Six weeks now, isn't it? I don't know. 
Could be seven if I mention it again. That's no, not Parallax. <laughs> it's the Tyrannian Enigma. Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, I got the wrong can't... book. <laughs> You're not the first person to do that. Got the wrong um, book. Yeah. Actually, there's a, there's a, oh, gosh, probably shouldn't go on about this. But uh, <laughs> in the early history of the telescope, there's uh, some, um, and I've, G Giovanni Battista della Porta, his name was. He wrote a book uh, in the middle of the 16th century. And later on, when the telescope was invented, somebody wrote to him and said, what do you think about this? And he said, oh, I wrote about that uh, 20 years ago in my book. And he gave the title of his book, but he actually got the wrong book. Uh, <laughs> so it's not it's not just you that's... <laughs> not just you, you does it? Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, you know, maybe both have got references to wormholes, but the the Tyrannian enigma is it's a, it's much more obvious. It's a, I'm very useful, I hope, in the uh, in the narrative and the plot. Well, because... well in, in, essential, yes, essential. Good. <laughs> hmm. So, um, so what we've got so wormholes are a, a theoretical prediction of general relativity, the theory of gravity that <clears throat> Mr. Einstein developed in 1915 and spent the rest of his life kind of thinking about and trying to reconcile with quantum mechanics, which sort of emerged around about the same time as relativity, a little bit later. Uh -huh. uh, but the two, um, quantum mechanics says that weird things happen on very small scales, like things can be in two places at once or, or, in, uh, or in two different states at once. Um, so uh, two completely uh, incompatible uh, sets of information and Einstein spent most of the rest of his life after 1915 he died in was it 1955 I think that's correct right uh, and spent most of the rest of his life trying to reconcile quantum physics and and relativity and and um, that quest still goes on but we now have a new tool in this game Andrew, mm -hmm. which is the uh, still in its infancy, but it is the developing world of quantum computers. And quantum computers, it seems, can come to the aid of people trying to undergo this reconciliation. And in particular, um, they, uh, they are looking at the relativistic phenomenon of the potential of wormholes. We've never found a wormhole, by the way, in space. No. Uh, tunnels through the fabric of space-time, which re relativity predicts, but we've never we've never found one. It's actually um, uh, it's 1935 that uh, Albert Einstein and Nathan Rosen described the first uh, idea of wormholes. Yeah. Uh, now, um, the there's some work that came it had its origins by in two. Uh, very, very well-known and able physicists uh, back in 2013, work done by Juan Maldacena and Leonard Susskind, uh, who published uh, stuff that where they speculated that wormholes are equivalent to quantum entanglement. Oh. Uh, now, we've talked about entanglement many times as well, where you, yes. you, know, you take two, two entangled uh, particles, move a long way apart, do something to one, something happens to the other one immediately um and that's uh, so in a sense you can see the link there because you're talking about things that can somehow bypass our normal ideas of space and time yeah so uh this uh has been carried on uh and we now have some work done in caltech 
which actually, uh, essentially, and I'm quoting here from our good friend Fizz.org, um, this uh, work explores the equivalence of wormholes with quantum teleportation. Uh, and so a lot of this stuff comes from Caltech. There's also a British component to this research uh, too, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, but uh, the, the theoretical framework of, of wormholes being equivalent to quantum, uh, quantum teleportation uh, is the foundation of this work, as I said, laid down by Caltech, uh, that, that actually suggests that you could do experiments in quantum computers that might be equivalent to a wormhole, if I can ah, put it that way. Okay. Um, and so that uh, takes us now, this was work that was published, what I've just described was published back in November last year, but there has been uh, some more work produced uh, because a quantum, basically a quantum, uh, I don't know what you call it, it's an experimental setup, has been carried out at the University of Bristol uh -huh. uh, in the United Kingdom in their, uh, they're in the quantum engineering technology labs. Uh, it's uh, extraordinary. It's an extraordinary world, the, the, the world of quantum computing, because there's so much happening. And it, you know, it clearly impacts on our world of the big stuff in the universe. When you th start thinking about the equivalence of, of, of um, uh, uh, entanglement, sorry, let me get it right, entanglement uh, and wormholes. Uh, and so the, uh, I'm going to go back to an, uh, another FIS.org article. And once again, you can find these on the FIS.org website, uh, which always gives references to the original papers. Uh, I have to say, I've looked several times at this stuff and uh, I'm not still not sure that I understand it. Uh, but the University of Bristol uh, has actually, or the, one of the physicists working there, uh, Hatim Sali, uh, who's an honorary research fellow at that quantum engineering technology lab, uh, has has talked about counterportation. Um, and it, it's a way of building a quantum computer that essentially creates a wormhole that will actually bridge space. Um, so the, the, the it's... This is a remarkable stuff. This thing's basically a simulation of a wormhole uh, on on a on a computer uh, that has been done before, um, but uh, this takes it a step further mm -hmm. because they are, are working to actually demonstrate that you can within a com quantum computer you can bypass space and time. In other words, you simulate a wormhole. Um, and what they're saying about this is not that it's ever going to take us to different bits of the universe because this is all happening inside a computer but yeah what it might well do uh is um is actually allow us to unpick the uh, the, the the probably and i think i mentioned this in last week's show that the underlying reality that uh. is something more basic than quantum physics or or general relativity uh, there, there is a some nice quotes, if I may, uh, from uh, uh, from Doctor Hatim, uh, um, who actually is Doctor Sali. Hatim Sali is his name. Uh, he says 
Um, not much. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm looking for the bit I want to read. Uh, okay. This work, uh, sorry, no, the goal in the near future, this is a bit of tragedy. Sorry, I'm flitting all through the article. The goal in the near future is to physically build such a wormhole in the lab, which yeah. can then be used as a test bed for rival physical theories, even ones of quantum gravity. Um, so the work is will be in the spirit of the multi-billion ventures that exist to witness new physical phenomena like the laser interferometer gra gravitational wave observatory, LIGO, and the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, uh, with the Large Hadron Collider, but at a fraction of the resources. In other words, we're doing it on the cheap. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Our hope is to ultimately provide remote access to local wormholes for physicists uh, Physics hobbyists and enthusiasts, thank you very much. Coffee uh, time. Uh, yes, it's coffee time. Uh, and to explore fundamental questions about the universe, including, here we go, the existence of higher dimensions. So it's all about really poking into this hidden world that we think unifies relativity and quantum physics and about which at the moment we know very little. Yeah, and, and it's it's fascinating science because we've talked in the past about uh, trying to reach the speed of light to get somewhere in space faster than we're capable of now, but the energy required makes that impossible. Yep. But if we were to uh, perfect um, this kind of science and do it on a large scale, uh, do you f foresee a day where we might be able to create wormholes to move across vast distances in space instantly, like they do in science fiction? No. Okay, good answer. <laughs> and the other thing um, the other thing I found interesting in this article was uh, how um, they describe Google's involvement in yeah, this. Yeah, that's right. Uh, With the, this. The, Google is heavily involved in quantum computer research. Now, the reason I said no, Andrew, is that... Um, and it may be the wrong answer. Um, you know, if you can do it with bits of information, which is really yeah. what this is all about, it's about qubits, which are which are uh, the information bits in a quantum computer. It's about sending them from one place to another, uh, because information is, uh, in many ways, you know, is reality. Uh, it's uh, and in fact, some physicists actually think that. Um, information really underli underlies it, that when we start uh, really digging into the, the unifying links between relativity and quantum physics, we might find that information is actually the common the common ground. Mm. So it, it, it's one thing to send cubics through a wormhole. It's quite another to send a spacecraft full of people through one, um, which certainly in, t in relativistic terms needs you to uh, warp space-time uh, to such an extent that you need almost the total energy budget of the universe to do it. So, so still the um, same problem, same problem. Yeah, it's the same mm. problem, that's right. Yeah. But um, watch There's this space. The, the, yeah, I was going to say the other problem is that it, based on what I've read briefly, um, what comes out the other end is a duplicate of what went in. So it's, you know, if you send people through a wormhole in space, it's not going to be them coming out the other end. It'll be their carbon copies. Yes. Not quite Not quite as good either. That's it will be a carbon copy, but I think in the process, the original gets destroyed. Is that yes. not right with that? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I read, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So probably not a good plan. No. Mm. <laughs> no, that's right. No, I uh. think information's fine. Uh, humans, maybe not so fine. <laughs> no, definitely not. 
Uh, yes, if you'd like to read up on that story, uh, most certainly go to the phys.org website, P-H-Y-S. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Well, hi everybody, it's Steve from Down Under here. I wanted to let you know that today's episode of Space Nuts is brought to you by Curiosity Stream, the streaming service perfect for people who want to know more. With exclusive award-winning films and shows, Curiosity Stream has the deepest collection of top-quality documentaries from around the world. Now, Andrew and I can tell you that in our household growing up, Mum and Dad didn't care what we were watching on TV so long as we were watching documentaries. And I wish we had Curiosity Stream back then. Now, whether you're interested in science, history, nature, technology, travel or more, Curiosity Stream has something for you. And with new content added every week, you'll never run out of things to watch. It's a big favourite in our household and I know it will be in yours too. Curiosity Stream is available on all your favourite streaming devices, including Roku, Xbox, Smart TVs, Apple TV, Amazon Fire and more. Plus, you can watch it on the web and on all your mobile devices. Best of all, it's available worldwide, so you can explore the world's top documentaries no matter where you are. So why wait? Go to curiositystream.com forward slash space nuts for unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and non-fiction series. And for our fans here at Space Nuts, use the promo code Space Nuts and save 25% off your subscription, of course. There is really something for everyone on Curiosity Stream. So click the link in the show notes or go to curiositystream.com forward slash Space Nuts and save 25% right now. Enjoy the world's best documentaries, just like Andrew and I did growing up with Curiosity Stream these days. And now it's back to Andrew and Fred with Space, Space Nuts. Nuts. Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. You're listening to Space Nuts, the podcast about astronomy and space science with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. It's good that we had a little NASA link there because um, we are going to now talk about one of the uh, most amazing pieces of hardware that NASA has developed, and that is the Space Launch system, the SLS rockets, uh, which have been around for a, a while, but they're still proving to be incredible workhorses. And now they're looking at an upgrade. That's right. <clears throat> so it's the, the rocket motors themselves that we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> excuse me, we, we discussed this last year, last November, when Artemis 1 was being launched uh, on the first um, flight of the new SLS, the Space Launch System, NASA's SLS system. It's still the world's most powerful rocket. Yeah. <clears throat> it might not be for long, but it, it still is. Uh, and so uh, the engines uh, of the Space Launch System's core, if you remember, it's it's a, it's a got a, a sort of standard rocket body core, but two huge boosters bolted on the sides. And those boosters are effectively the... Um, uh, they're derived from the boosters that used to be used with the space shuttle. Yeah. Uh, they're chemical solid fuel rockets. Uh, you light the fuse and off it goes. And in fact, on launch, they provide, uh, together, they provide something like uh, 80%. Uh, no, something like 75% of the, of the thrust. Uh, the rest of it comes from these RS-25 engines, uh, which were developed for the space shuttle. 
Um, the, these engines were first certified in 1979, Andrew. So this wow. is <clears throat> excuse me, stuff that goes back a long way. Yes. Uh, followed two years later by the first space shuttle launch, uh, which used them. Uh, so they are um, really quite incredible machines, uh, half a million pounds of thrust uh, each, if I am reading my figures correctly. Um, that's right. So half a million pounds of, uh, of maximum thrust each. Uh, and they are, of course, they're controllable, they're throttleable. So you can you can actually, uh, once you've thrown off the boosters, which just you like them and they just go, uh, you can control what the spacecraft is doing. Uh, there were three of them in each space shuttle. Um, uh, there are four of them on each uh, space launch system core. Yeah. Uh, there, there's some really quite extraordinary uh, facts. Uh, NASA have produced, as they do so well, uh, some fact sheets about about these uh, these engines. Um, uh, so, 135 launches in the in the 30 years of, uh, of space shuttle launches. Uh, a lot of adaptation work that's gone on, uh, and they've started off the space. Uh, sorry, the uh, the SLS, the Space Launch System. Uh, with 16 of these RS-25 engines. So that would be enough for four launches because unlike the Space Shuttle, which came back to Earth at the end of every flight, yeah. the SLS gets dumped in the in the Atlantic, so yeah. it doesn't come back. Uh, but now what's happening is back in, I think, 2017, uh, the, the company that built them, uh, which is um, Rocketdyne, effectively, uh, they, um, it's actually Aerojet Rocketdyne now. They, they used to be just Rocketdyne. Aerojet Rocketdyne, uh, they started up again to build uh, their new engines back in 2017. And they've got a contract now to build 18 of them. So these engines are, are actually uh, the new shiny version of the RS-25 with the thrust upgraded. 111% uh, more than it originally was in 1979. Uh, mm. Sorry, yes, so, but you know. 10%, sorry, 11% more. Um, it's uh, quite an amazing thing. One fact that I loved about these engines, Andrew, is that the gases that are coming out of the exhaust when it's uh, full thrust are traveling at 13 times the speed of sound. Wow. Uh, which is why you get that, you know, it's a sonic boom that you're getting when you stand and watch a, a, a launch and sort of feel the, the vibration, which yeah. I've never, never done. Uh, but yeah, quite extraordinary. I I love the way they crackle, the, these engines. Yeah, they do, don't they? And, and that might be that. What if that might be it? That might be the sonic booms, uh, basically doing exactly that. <clears throat> I I guess we're going to see these things in action for some time to come. I, they recently announced the crew for the Artemis mission that's going to go around the the moon with humans in it. Uh, and um, uh, there, there, there's a lot of milestones being met there. Uh, but th these engines are just going to keep on keeping on until they can come up with something better. And I guess time will be a factor in that. But the, the, they're just so powerful. Uh, do, we, you know, do we at this stage need anything better, uh, especially given these are being upgraded? Um, so, so I suppose the... it depends what we're going to send up there if we're going to need to put heavier payloads into yeah. space and things like that. It, it's oh, if, we build, if we build a, if we're going to build interstellar spacecraft, we'll probably need some uh, heavy lifting to be done. 
That's correct. We will. <laughs> um, so it, it kind of highlights the uh, the difference in philosophy. Um, if you think about the uh, SpaceX's ventures in this game, uh, the Starship Heavy, yeah. which is very near to having test launches, um, and that works on the same philosophy as they've uh, as. Uh, SpaceX has used for their Falcon rockets, where you have a relatively small number of engines. If I remember rightly, they're the Raptor engines. I think I'm right in saying that. Um, you have smallish engines, but you put lots of them in. Uh, so um, I can't remember how many rocket motors a Falcon 9 has. It may even be nine. It's quite a lot, but it's many, many more in the uh, in the in the uh, Starship. Uh, you know, it's probably 20 or 30 of these things all firing together. Yeah. Uh, whereas the philosophy that's been adopted by NASA is, uh, and it, it actually, this highlights another contrast, which I'll get to in a minute, <laughs> uh, but it's to, to use bigger engines, which are probably uh, much more high tech. Uh, these are, I think, if I remember rightly, the I think they're called staged combustion engines. They're a particular yeah. type. Uh which actually uh, it gives them this extraordinary power. Um, and they, you know, each one of these engines is about the size of two cars, one piled on top of the other. They're huge yeah. things. They're massive. Um, and you've got four of them on the space shuttle. So, oh, sorry, on the space launch system. Uh, so, yeah, it's a different philosophy. What I was going to say was it harks back to the 1960s, Andrew, when, um, yes, uh, Saturn V had engines which were very similar to these yeah. uh, and five of them on the first stage yeah i Whereas... stood un- i've stood under one at that uh, yeah, Cape Canaveral. Yeah, that must wow. be quite oh, inspiring that's right you you know you see it on tv and you think that is enormous and then you go and and you know how tv makes things look bigger yes the yes. saturn five is an is, exception is, is it it gets even bigger it yeah. just, when you see it you go i was going to swear holy cow yeah, that's is what the you, word. Yeah, it is. It is staggeringly huge. They've got it hanging from the roof in a Saturn V exhibition center uh, yes. at NASA, and it fills the whole place up. And they've got yeah. the stages broken up. So you start. I started at the back and moved forward. But um, you, you could stand inside one of those uh, exhausts, and yep. you wouldn't. You still wouldn't be able to reach up and touch the top. They're no, just no, that's humongous. Right. Yeah. Very, yeah. very exciting to to have been able to do that quite a few years ago now. But um, yeah, if you're ever around Cape Canaveral, Florida, do it. You've got to do it. It's just Hopefully. so so brilliant. Hopefully, I'll be doing it next year because we're yeah. running a t- we're running a tour there. Well, ah, exciting. Uh, yes, but uh, what I was going to say. So the, <laughs> the five big engines of the Saturn V uh, contrast with the. Soviet Union's equivalent at that time, which you and I have spoken about before, because they were building their own version of a Saturn V, quite different in shape and structure. Uh, that was the N1, it was called, the right. Soviet Union's N1 rocket, which had, I think, 32 smaller rocket motors. Yeah. Um, in its didn't, first didn't they blow stage. up a lot? They, they never managed to, to get one to fly yeah. successfully. No, that's no. Right. And it certainly never... Nobody ever got him one. I think there were four test launches and, and they were all, none of them really succeeded. And one of the problems I think that they found was, um, you know, when you've got 
lots and lots of smaller engines, you've got the sort of interplay of vibrations between them. It's not just the, uh, you know, the vibration of one engine uh, or a small number of engines shuddering through the rocket. It's ah. all these things uh, competing with one another in vibrations. And if you get resonances, you know, things where vibrations build up, Harmonic disturbance. Yeah, exactly. That's right. The sort of oh. the same thing that happens the, with sound. The Tacoma Rapids Bridge. Yes, was, exactly. Was a harmonic disturbance. Yeah, that's right. So oh. that's the sort of thing that would destroy a rocket. Yeah. Uh, and maybe one reason is one reason why the Soviet Union's N one uh, was never successful. Well, that was also the demise of the um, Comet uh aircraft the, the the i think it was the comet passenger plane yes which threatened boeing for many years until they had uh, a few inexplicable crashes and it turned out, out to be uh metal fatigue caused by those uh vibrations no mm. it, it was it, what it was wing? it was no it was the square windows Square windows. Um, I, I remember. I remember all this really well. I saw a doco about it. it. Yeah. Well, I saw it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So um, you're absolutely right. It was the world's first uh, turbojet uh, aircraft, a passenger aircraft, uh. um, and did threaten to give uh, Boeing a run for its money. Um, there were design differences. The the uh, Comet had four engines, which were actually built into the wings. Uh, and of course, Boeing went the other way, had them slung under the wings, which turns out to be a much, much better idea on all kinds yeah. of different counts. But what um, what essentially scuppered the Comet, uh, they had, I think, three, as you, maybe four accidents yeah. uh, where the aircraft was lost. Uh, it was traced to be due to sudden decompression of the fuselage, ah, right. and it was because of metal fatigue in the corners of these square windows. Yeah. The windows yeah. were square. I knew so, metal fatigue came into it yeah, somewhere. Yeah, right, you were right there. Uh, and I mean, maybe vibration uh, had an impact, but it was it was the fact that the, the square corners of these windows were a, a critical point of failure, and that's where the metal fatigue set in. And in uh, fact, the um, it, it led to uh, rapid depressurization, and many, many lives were lost. And of course, it, it scuppered the... Uh, the British yeah. aircraft industry. They were built by de Havilland, uh, mm. were, that, which was one of many, many uh, British air, uh, uh, aviation companies post-war, all of which wound up being part of British aerospace, uh, mm. which is Amazing. now uh, you know, nothing like Boeing in terms of scale. No. Well, that explains why all aircraft windows are essentially yep. round yep. now, they're or all, have round, all, round oh, corners. That's yeah. right, absolutely right. And, and to answer one final point, there are 27 engines on the Falcon Heavy. There you go. Okay, uh, I wasn't, wasn't far off. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, but that's really interesting. It'll be uh, uh, quite exciting to watch the future of um, of, of rockets uh, and, and uh, rocket science with the RS-25's uh, continued development. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, let's go to our Q&A section. And we've uh, got a follow-up from last week. Uh, Paul uh, messaged us. Uh, Paul's from Melbourne, Victoria. Uh, I'll, re I'll repeat his question because you've done a bit of research on this. Uh, there's been talk recently about the energy that causes the universe to expand coming from black holes. If this is so, then wouldn't we see the time space around or near a black hole expanding at a faster rate than the further uh, than that further away from black holes, for example, between galaxies, 
or um, that in between uh, in spaces between filaments of the cosmic web. Wouldn't the filaments of the cosmic web be expanding faster? And we tried to answer, but <laughs> we thought we thought it deserved a little bit more yeah, homework. I couldn't remember um, the, the the link that had been made between black holes and dark energy. Yeah, uh, and what it is, and um, there's a very nice article on space.com uh, entitled "Black Holes May Be the Source of Mysterious Dark Energy." Uh, uh, by um, uh, Stephanie Waldeck, uh, and it's, it kind of explains where ha, ha, sort of where this research is going. But it, um, uh, unless you're sort of into the mathematics of the uh, the original research, <clears throat> you probably still feel as I do that there are questions remaining. So, uh, by the way, it was uh, this research was published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. Uh, on February 15th, as, as I think you mentioned uh, last week when we were talking about it, Andrew. So the, 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 the research in question has looked at uh, the mass of supermassive black holes through the history of the universe. So remember that we think all galaxies have a supermassive black hole at their center. Yep. Um, you can by using the trick of look back time, you can investigate these black holes as you look backwards in time. Uh, and it turns out, and this was the work, it was actually led by the university, scientists at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in Honolulu. Um, it's, uh, they've, they've looked back over time and what they found is that the black holes sort of early in the universe, um, they are more massive than they ought to be if all uh, they're doing is accreting stars. That's how we think black, supermassive black holes grow, by gobbling up stars uh, and, and other debris, gas stars, dark matter probably. Uh, that makes them <coughs> quiet mass. But um, the... The, this imbalance in the mass of black holes that suggests that they're more massive than they should be if all they're doing is is chewing up matter uh, has led these scientists to believe that the the sort of missing if I can put it this way the missing mass in the black holes is actually dark energy uh. Uh, so let me read as I often do. A quote from one of the authors of this study, and and actually that uh, that uh, space dot com page that I mentioned has got a couple of very nice videos about about this stuff. Uh, but um, Duncan Farah, who's at the University of Hawaii, uh, he says we're really saying two things at once: that there is evidence that the typical black hole solutions, and by that he means the what the theory of relativity tells you. Yep. Don't work for you on a long, long time scale. And we have the first proposed astrophysical source for dark energy. Uh, in other words, they think that black holes have something to do with dark energy. Now, I think what I said a few minutes ago, uh, I think I said it the wrong way around. 
because I think I said the younger galaxies have more than they should have, but it's actually the other way around. It's the older galaxies. They're, they're bigger than they should be right. if, if all they've got is uh, stars that they're gobbling up. Uh, and so now the the link between that, the a sort of kind of dark energy component within black holes and the dark energy in the universe is the one that I am still struggling with uh, because I'm not actually sure how you get from one to the other. And the reason is the black holes are discrete objects. They are, they are objects in space. Dark energy, as, as according to our best understanding, is the same everywhere. It's not in blobs. And that was the thrust, I think, of Paul's question. Mm, yeah. um, you know, why don't we see distortion of space around black holes well we do but why don't we see more than we should uh with this this dark energy if dark energy is something to do with black holes um and i don't really see the link i think it comes out in the mathematics um i probably ought to have another look at that paper um which is right in front of me now uh and it is entitled observational evidence for cosmological coupling of black holes and its implication for an astrophysical source of dark energy right uh and it's got a lot of big words in it and <laughs> uh some big equations actually it's not too bad for equations um it's not as bad as i remembered <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's an interesting paper. I, I, I will read it again. Um, it's the sort of thing you really have to dedicate a day to, to sit down. There's a, a large list of authors. Duncan Farrer is the lead author from the University of Hawaii. Uh, but yeah, if, if you have um, a mathematical bent, uh, I'm addressing now our listeners because I know you don't, Andrew, uh, but that's a paper to read and have a look at. So the, the the basic answer to Paul's inquiry is that um, dark energy is even throughout the universe, therefore the effects he's describing wouldn't occur. That's correct. Okay. Uh, I think that's a beautiful summary. I wish I'd no, said that. Did that without an equation. There is an equation that links all this together, and that's E equals MC squared. Because yes, of course. That's the one that tells you that energy and mass are equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, again, and I'm glad we could follow that up and fill in some of the blanks. Uh, let's now go to Oregon. It's our good friend, Buddy. Hello, Space Nuts. Buddy from Ontario, Oregon. Hey, uh, since they think dark energy is coming from black holes, why aren't they losing more mass if they're losing, if the energy is being redistributed out into the universe? Are they, I don't get it. Could that possibly be <laughs> what's pushing our solar system back uh, or galaxy back together keeping it from falling apart is we're losing energy in the local area and it's being redistributed over the entire universe and so we're only getting a little piece of that energy back in our piece of the universe so it's kind of pushing in just a thought guys uh hopefully fred can get my head straight on this one <laughs> keep up the good work it kind of relates to uh, Paul's question. But, it's, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, it, 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 I just thought um, it, it was a good question because it, 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 it is the one that's got a lot of people scratching their heads at the moment. Me included. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, but, but what Buddy says is exactly right. Um, uh, um, but, the, in fact, the observation is the opposite of what he said. He said, why aren't they losing mass? And the observation is that they're they're you know, they're fatter than they ought to be. 
Yeah. They've got more mass, which is being interpreted as dark energy. Uh, but it's the trick of getting that stuff out of the black hole and into the wider universe that is the missing link in my understanding of this uh, issue. So, buddy, uh, you and Paul together are challenge, you know, raising questions that are basically the same as the ones I've got. Uh, I will once again have a look at this paper in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, and if I can see the breakthrough, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 we'll raise it again because it is such an interesting topic. Oh, um, it is, you know, yeah. especially if it does solve the problem. Uh, yeah. And um, I'm sure there must be other scientists working on this. That paper was published back in February. I'm not sufficiently close to the gossip. Uh, within the cosmolo cosmology community, um, to to know what the story is, but um, in fact, my um, one of my links into that world is currently uh, on sabbatical in Oxford, so I can't ask him very uh. easily. Uh, so uh, yes, we'll we we will see uh, as time goes on, and no doubt this will crop up again in space dots. So oh, watch this space. Will. That's the best it I can do. Thanks again, buddy, and Paul, for your questions. Yes, and I suppose when you're talking about relatively new science, it's always going to spawn questions. And at the moment, we don't have an absolute definitive answer. We're still trying to figure it out. And that's where, you know, people send us in questions and say, well, you know, what, what's a white hole? hole? Well, we don't know. We've never seen one. Don't even know if they exist. So it's the same with dark energy, dark matter. We know they exist. Uh, we don't know very much at all about dark energy. We've got a bit more of an idea about dark matter. But again, they are still puzzles to, to be solved, I would venture to say. Thank you, buddy. Oh. Thank you, Paul. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, I'm just re I'm reading through the abstract of that paper again. Um, yeah, so there's a crucial sentence in here which says the continuity equation then requires that black holes contribute cosmology as vacuum energy. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That, I understood that. Yeah. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Fair enough. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Paul. Uh, one final question before we wrap up this episode uh, comes from Dave in Colorado. Hi, Andrew and Fred. I found your podcast about a year ago, and I've gone back and listened to every episode. Are you still married? Uh, I love the podcast and can't wait for the next one to come out each week. Uh, the question I have is about the Huntsman Telescope at Siding Spring <laughs> Observatory. I was watching an Instagram short about it, and I saw Professor Fred's name on a plaque on the outside of the dome it resides in. I was wondering if you could explain what science the telescope is doing since it's such a unique telescope or a group of telescopes technically. I've tried to find out what it does and can't seem to find out much about it. Uh, thanks for your work. Uh, thanks for the work you do. And uh, keep this podcast going and growing, Dave. It's called the Huntsman Telescope because it doesn't do very much, but it's really good at killing Huntsman spiders. <laughs> yes, probably. Bang them over the head with it. <clears throat> oh, if you do that, yeah, you you would. It's quite heavy. So um, it's <laughs> a, it is unique. Uh, Dave's right. It's a, a telescope that uses... Uh, 10 commercially available telephoto lenses. They're, they're very high-end uh, telephoto lenses. They're Canon lenses made for principally for sports photography. So, you know, when you when you watch a football game or something like that, you see these guys with these long lenses on sometimes uh. on tripods uh, sitting by the uh, 
sitting by the, the ground. They're the ones that they're using, that kind of lens. Um, but it turns out, um, this is work that was probably kicked off, I think, by a colleague of mine at Macquarie University here in Sydney, Dr. Lee Spittler. Uh, in fact, I think he's, I think he's Associate Professor Lee Spittler, if I remember rightly, which is very, very well deserved. Um, they, they have used these lenses uh, to, oh, well, the, the, the thing that makes these lenses special is that they've got very low scattering characteristics. In other words, you send light through a normal mirror lens, which is probably what you'd want to use, and you got not just the reflection, but you get light scattering. And what that does is if you form an image on a very sensitive electronic detector, you're spreading scattered light all over the image. Um, and that means that the very faintest objects that you might want to look at, including sort of wispy tendrils of stars in distant galaxies, yeah. uh, they're swamped by the scattered light from the brighter bits of those distant galaxies. So what you want is a, um, you know, a lens uh, that will have very minimal scattering characteristics. In fact, it, uh, the uh, uh, I know that Lee took his idea for this telescope from something I think in the US called the Dragonfly Telephoto Array. And Huntsman is a telephoto array. It uses ten of these lenses, and the the sorts of research that it's involved with is stuff that needs to you to look at very faint extended objects. Uh, and by an extended object, I mean something different from a point source. Uh, now, Andrew, you might be surprised, as I was decades and decades ago, to know that the sensitivity of a telescope to an extended object, something like a nebula rather than a point source, doesn't depend on the diameter of the telescope. Oh. Uh, it's actually a function of the focal ratio, uh, which is something well known to photographers uh, the faster the focal ratio, in other words, the smaller the F number, if I can put it that way, yeah. <clears throat> the more sensitive you are to extended objects. It doesn't matter how big your, your lens is, huh. which is kind of counterintuitive. But that, of course, explains why uh, astrophotographers, your hobby astrophotographers these days, can produce images of the universe that rival the ones David Merling was producing with the Anglo-Australian Telescope 30 years ago. Uh, it's because of the focal ratio dependence of extended objects. It's fabulous stuff, and it's yeah. great science. Uh, so anything, so Huntsman's really good at things where you've got very faint extended objects. And I'm reading now from the Huntsman website uh, the uh, sorts of um, questions that it will help to answer are about galaxy formation and evolution, including star disk formation, galaxy growth through the coming together of satellite galaxies, uh, understanding gas turbulence in the galactic interstellar medium, understanding uh -huh. the relationship between st uh, star gas assembly and cold neutral hydrogen gas assembly, uh, and it's also got a role in uh, long period in um, looking for e um, exoplanets as well. The number of long period exoplanets around test stellar systems is another of their declared interests. It's a there great go, telescope, Dave. and I was very honoured to be asked to open it uh, last year. Hence the plaque, Dave. Hence the plaque, yeah. Um, thank you, Dave. And uh, I hope that uh, helps you understand a bit more about what the Huntsman's going to do. The only major inaccuracy, you said it had 10 cameras? Uh, or 10 lenses? 10, ten yes. It's, it's yeah. A Huntsman spider only has eight eyes. It does, I know. 
This this one has ten eyes, so it's a super huntsman. It's a super uh, huntsman. And one of its one of its other advantages that by strapping on more lenses, you can make it into a super duper huntsman. Yeah, uh, and I think there are plans afoot to to try and increase the number. But yes, it's ten lenses at the moment. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everyone who sent in questions. Keep them coming because we love to hear from you. You can do that via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. That's for younger people. And uh, just uh, click on the links. There's a, a link called AMA where you can send audio and text questions or just hit the tab on the right-hand side of the homepage. Send us your voice message. If you've got a device with a microphone, that's all you need. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and uh, ask your question, and we will do our best to put it in there. We get a lot of questions that are almost the same, so we tend to um, not run them all. But, uh, well, we did today with Paul and Buddy. They were basically talking about the same thing, but um, it fitted in with the discussion. But, uh, yeah, please uh, send us your questions by all means. And if you thought about it and never got around to it, well, yeah, we'd love to hear from you, especially if you're a newbie. We haven't had um, um, too many newbies lately, but uh, we get them occasionally, and that's nice. We'd love to hear from everybody all over the world. And while you're on the website, uh, don't forget to check out the the shop because Fred's got books in there, <laughs> which I'm not going to mention <laughs> at all. And uh, no, this no, the Astronomy no. Daily newsletter. And if you want to find out about how to support Space Nuts, there's a little little link there as well if you're interested. Okay, Fred, that wraps it up for another week. Thank you so very much. It's always a pleasure, Andrew, and we'll talk again soon. We will indeed. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and uh, back to Hugh in the studio. Yep, the usual response. <laughs> and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. Catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.